1: Fount of every blessing Turn my heart to sing Thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of Welcome
0: life. to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N, dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion. All one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Mitch Main, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Thank you, Bill. Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I have been looking forward to this chance to sit down with you, I actually probably a year and a half ago or so began thinking about when when the time came to have this kind of discussion uh, on the LGBT issues. And of course, you're at the very top of my list, so I am so grateful to have this uh, chance for you and I to spend some time together. My listeners are going to be pretty familiar, I think, with who you are, but I'm sure there's going to be a few in the listening audience who who may not know uh, about who uh, Mitch May. Uh, who you are and uh, and what uh, what brings you or what makes you special that you're on the podcast today. And I, I'm excited to, to kind of get into it, but I thought I'd start off by giving you a chance to share maybe a brief bio about yourself. Uh, so tell us who you are, Mitch.
2: Uh, I'm happy to do that. I, I thought it was. I had to chuckle to myself when you said I was on your list. I'm, I'm used to being on people's lists.
0: Um, <laughs> not always in a
2: good way. Not always in a good way. Um, I am Mitch Main. Uh, I am an openly gay, active Mormon guy. Um, and uh, about uh, a few years ago, I, yeah, I think in 2011, um, I was asked to serve in the Bishopric as um, the Executive Secretary in the Bay Ward here in San Francisco uh, as an openly gay man. I, actually, because I was an openly gay man, um, I had recently. Split with my partner of uh, many years, um, and that made me eligible to serve. Um, and there was a change in bishopric uh, in the bishop, and um, he was uh, a man who saw this as a very important issue and wanted to put a human face um, on what we inside the Mormon world generally think of um, as a statistic, um, as something that happens someplace else. And I'm just going to put a spotlight on, um, you know, what what the ex- what the Mormon experience is for elderly people, um, and that actually my story went viral with. In, um I think there was a there were rumors about it on Facebook and I, I think like the day of my calling or like the day of my sustaining on August 14th um I had like 750 like Facebook messages in my account And I'm like holy crap I don't know what to do with this so quickly I worked with a little press team and we put up a website which is um actually still up in my primary website it's www.mitchmaine.com, um you know telling the story and then that went viral and I thought that was gonna like end the questions and then like you know the Pandora's box opened, and um, I was, you know, on CNN immediately as front page story on um, Salt Lake City Tribune, and the media attention has lasted for quite some time um, because I think that not only is there a need inside the Mormon community to reconcile between you know the LGBT and the, and the Mormon communities, but the larger society has um, an eye on this as well, particularly as LGBT topics become more and more newsworthy and more and more um, in our public policy arena. So that's me. But the truth of the matter is, is I'm just kind of a normal guy. Um, I live in San Francisco. I work for a Fortune 100 firm uh, in corporate communication and brand strategy. And uh, I've lived here for like a decade. I go to church every Sunday and the dry cleaner and, and the grocery store in the gym. <laughs> that's my bio.
0: Gotcha. When, when you had this... Uh... This, I guess, kind of news hit the media that you had been called into a leadership calling within the uh, within your local ward, and you mentioned getting a lot of responses. If I can just ask, were were they mostly positive? Were they mostly negative? Was there was there kind of a split down the middle? What was kind of the reaction to that?
2: Um. I was surprised at first because um, with as much attention as it was getting I was a little scared I'm kind of the backstory bill is like I had actually been blogging and you know publishing essays about um, my experience for quite some time a lot of it had been anonymous um, out of you know fear of retribution uh, from the church particularly when um, my partner and I were still together um, and so I wasn't really any stranger to social media or to talking about this issue from my perspective um, and, the, and and I had learned about it you know what other people had dealt with as well. So I was a little scared that, you know, it's the people were going to be really upset about this. And there were people who were upset about it, Mormon people. I mean, I remember one person um, calling up uh, Joanna Brooks, um, uh, who is a good friend of mine, and, and saying, you know, Joanna, so there's this gay guy in the bishopric now. What am I supposed to teach my kid? And, I mean, that was sort of startling to me. And, I, you know, I, I didn't know how to respond to stuff like that. But by and large, um, the responses were overwhelmingly optimistic kind. And truly what surprised me was the amount of, you know, traditional, you know, suburban Utah married with kids, Mormon, who rallied around me and said, this is so awesome. I have been praying for something like this to happen. I have been praying for us to, you know, mend this fence after Proposition 8. And, you know, I'm so glad that you're here. And I really welcome you and I want you to see And that really meant a lot to me. Um, I think at one point in time, my my stake president, who was super surprised that it was as newsworthy as it was, had, you know, gone through some news story that I'd done. And he's like, wow, you sure have a lot of supporters. He's like, this is just so great to see. Um, So, yeah, there were some people who were upset by it. But by and large, people were really um, positive and optimistic. And that made me feel good.
0: Awesome. Awesome. I want to ask you maybe two more personal questions. Then we're going to jump into the topic uh, that you and I have kind of talked about. And I think it'll get to the heart of the matter and, and uh, really help people maybe understand this issue from the perspective. And you and I talked about this from the perspective of what we can do within the doctrine and policy to be more inclusive to those within the LGBT community. So the two questions I got for you is the first one is when did you know Mitch that you were, that you were gay? <laughs>
2: Um, Well, I my, I guess, easy answer to that is I never knew that I was anything but gay. Um, I never thought that I was straight. Um, Kind of the story that I tell is, um, you know, when I was in first grade, um, at, you know, three o'clock the bell would ring and we'd all, you know, get out of school. I wasn't one of those kids who would go over to my friend's house and, you know, play or I wouldn't stop on the playground and, you know, kick the ball around. I ran home as quickly as I could, Bill, because, At 4 o'clock in the afternoon were reruns of the original Star Trek series, and I had a terrible crush on Captain Kirk. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, at six years old, there was nothing you know prurient about it. It wasn't about sex at all. Um, but it was just you know me growing up um, as I believe my father in heaven made me. It's like all I knew is this: like this guy was you know handsome, and he was smart, and he was valiant. And he always did the right thing, and he had this really you know amazing life of living in a spaceship. And I just wanted. Captain Kirk to be part of my life, and um, if he were part of my life, Captain Kirk just would have been the guy that I give my, you know, my six-year-old Valentine to on Valentine's Day. Um, so that's how I grew up. I didn't really have the vocabulary to be able to explain to anyone why I liked Star Trek. So much. Um, I didn't know what gay meant. I didn't know um, what any of that stuff meant. But um, I always knew that that's where my orientation was, and that's that's who I was.
0: Yeah, you know, for me, it was Wonder Woman and Daisy off the Dukes of Hazzard, and uh, and it was the same kind of thing. It was certainly innocent enough as a young kid watching TV. Uh, but uh, but that's that's what I tuned in uh, after school to watch. I want to ask you this too, which is, how did your family when you when you finally came out and uh, and your family was aware? Of that how did they respond to that
2: um gosh uh that's a that's a painful question um you know the first words out of my um my mom's mouth um and when i was 16 years old um i told my parents and the first few words out of my mom's mouth were it would have been better for me if i had been born dead and gay um wow My father actually didn't say anything at all um, for a little bit, Um, and then his comment was, you know, there have been a lot of things and a lot of ways you failed me that this is the biggest. Um, so it wasn't a supportive environment, um, and it wasn't it wasn't a happy coming out. Um, and um, shortly thereafter, there was a concerted effort. You know, there was the natural thing that we do as Mormons, right? We run to bishop with our problems. And you know, gosh, back in the '80s and '90s, a um, bishop in Idaho was really not well equipped to deal with this. Um, but neither were my parents, right? And <clears throat> over time, Bill, I have come to realize that you know, my mom's words especially wounded. Um, but I've come to understand that those weren't the words of a woman hated a gay son. Those were the words of a Mormon mom who was terrified because she had no idea how to parent me.
0: Right, and the reason I asked those two questions, Mitch, was because as you and I talked today, my hope is, is that listeners will recognize some of the false assumptions we set up around this topic and some of the judgments that each of us tend to, I guess, naturally make until we know better. Uh, some of the unfortunate uh, stereotypes or calls of judgment in seeing people as less than a child of God at times. And I hope that as we go through this podcast, we can, we can kind of maybe correct some of those and share some thoughts that will at least uh, help people to open their hearts to some of the things that, uh, that I think are important to this topic. I want to ask you, uh, in regards to your serving in those two callings and you talked about the responses being overwhelmingly positive, how did other leaders within the church respond? How did how did other members of the bishopric or other members of the ward or or even within the stake how did they respond to you serving in those callings?
2: Um again, overwhelmingly positive. I have to tell you that um so the first meeting that we had as a bishopric happened to be ward council, right? It fell on Ward Council Sunday, which right. um, as you guys all know, is like it's it's like freaking the whole crew comes in, right? It's like all <laughs> your auxiliaries and and we're so inclusive that, it, like, it meant, like, you know, not only the president of the Sunday school, but, you know, the secretary and elders quorum and, you know, and their family. It's like, well, not really their family, but it was, it was a huge meeting. And I knew no one in this ward um, in San Francisco because what had happened is when I finished graduate school um, in Palo Alto, I had moved up to Oakland Hills, and I'd been going to the Oakland Hills ward, um, the Oakland First ward, for a number of years. And then when I moved into the city, I just continued to, you know, commute across the bridge on Sunday because there was no traffic and it was easy Um, so I was called in to serve in this ward where I actually resided um, but I didn't know anybody right I only knew Don Fletcher who was in the state presidency and then took over as a bishop so I was a stranger in a strange land and I had no idea what I was walking into and of course between the time of my um sustaining and the First War Council meeting, there had just been a ton of press and it was still ongoing, so it's like I didn't know how these people were going to react to me, if they were going to hate me, if they were going to love me and lo and behold, they just treated me pretty much like everybody else um, and a lot of people told me that it was a cool and I appreciated that, but what I appreciated more than anything else, people just treating me like a normal guy um, and um, it went really, really well um, As far as leaders around the country, what has been interesting um, is the number of stake presidents and bishops and counselors who have reached out to me in confidence um, and uh, just on a personal level, on a one-on-one level, to talk to me about what they can do in their ward stakes you know, to make them more welcoming or to ask my advice on a specific challenge that they have with an LGBT member of their of their ward or stake. And in a lot of instances, and I think this is really telling and a huge opportunity for us as Mormons is you know, the stake presidents who call me and ask me for advice because they've just found out that their son is gay, right? Or their daughter is gay. Um, and what that says to me is the resources we have today don't work. The irony is, you know, in, you know, the 1980s, and, you know, I could stand in front of my parents and, and have that kind of response, you know, it would have been better for me if you'd been born dead than gay. And here we are, you know, what, 25 years later, and that's still happening. And that's really what is shocking me and really where I see the huge opportunity for us as a Mormon culture is to begin to recognize that science has progressed and there are ways for us to parent in this model that keeps within, you know, the best parts of our Mormon faith. And we'll talk about those in a minute, As I hope, as we go through podcasts. Um, but, yeah, that was kind of the reaction uh, was, was overly optimistic and positive. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm immune from, um, you know, the snide remark in the hallway or the eye roll or, you know, Know, the unwelcome, you know, turning your back on me and walking away when I say something—that happens to me too. Um, but by and large, that is a very minimal part of my Mormon experience.
0: Gotcha. And I want to—that's it. I want to dive in now into some of this. And, and I think the way we'll approach this, I want to talk a little bit about the doctrine and in, in what we find in the scriptures, and then I want to hit on the policy. And in the midst of this I want to I want to kind of hit on what we have the flexibility to do that we're currently not doing so as to stay within the bounds that the church has set but to still make a whole lot more room for those within the LGBT community who are members of the church. And so maybe starting off Mitch you, know, you and I can maybe kind of go back and forth a little bit with a couple of ideas but but what do you understand the doctrine to be and maybe what points should we hit on that uh, that the average member should be aware of?
2: Well, you know, it's like, I am not, uh, 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 scriptorian or a theologian. I don't even know if that's a word, scriptorian, is it? Um, Yeah, it is. (laughs) Oh, is it? Well, that's good. I'm still not one. Um, But I've had to learn a lot about it, obviously, in a very short period of time. And um, the one thing that I think that we get snagged on is we go back to the principle of, um, you know, the the principles that are outlined in the Proclamation of Family, right? That marriage is between one man and one woman and we don't recognize anything else. And there is one standard and that standard is chastity outside of that bond of one man and one woman, um, and you can get into whether or not that's really one standard or not, which I don't think it is, um, later if you want, but that is, I think, where people always just go back, back to and boil it down to. Um, what is your understanding on doctrine? Is that is that kind of what you were thinking as well?
0: Yeah, I think the church... Establishes that as kind of the general basis that we go on right now, but you bring up an interesting point, which is as the family proclamation mentions, uh, one, you know, one man and one woman, it it almost seems to ignore the fact that in its own history that it, it kind of went different than that for, for quite a while.
2: Well, I think if you, you know, again, not a historian, um, but if you just look back, it doesn't take much more than a web searcher contacting somebody who is a web or a church historian to figure out that we've changed the definition of marriage. I mean, I think at least three times that I can think of over the last hundred years. Um, so it's kind of a moving target. And um, where I get frustrated is when people, you know, hammer their fist on the desk and say, you know, God has spoken, this is immovable, it's unchangeable, this is how it's always going to be. It's like, we don't really get to know that, right? I mean, that's what the ninth article of faith tells us. So um, this is how we understand it today, and it is our reality. So, okay.
0: Yeah, right, we'll work within it. Yep, absolutely. And you're right, though, too. It is strange how a, a, there's a segment of Latter-day Saints who say this is the way it is and this is the way it's always going to be. But even just to, to set this issue aside of, of the LGBT uh discussion that we're having, we're founded on a church that the constant thing is change, right? We're open to new revelation. We're open to new truths coming forward. And as you point out, as we look over our church's history, that is, uh, that's the one constant, that something is always around the corner that's going to change the way we look at things. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, too, you had given a talk uh, a few years back, and you had talked about the one instance in the scriptures where perhaps... We can make a little bit of a leap in understand Jesus having encountered a uh, a gay man. Uh, would you mind sharing that uh, that little thought that you had uh, as you shared that?
2: Oh my gosh, was that the talk on um, on the eunuchs? Yes, it was. Ah, I, I I am hard pressed to remember that one because <laughs> there have been a lot of them. Um, I think that the general premise there was um, that eunuchs could. Uh, I, I think the scripture was like they can be made, um, or they can choose to be that way, right?
0: Yeah, there was three options that Jesus encounters the eunuch and he says that there are some who are born that way. There are some who, uh, choose to be eunuchs for, essentially for a religious purpose. And there are others who are made to be eunuchs by, by someone else. And, and Jesus almost seemed to, in that scripture, seemed to Almost kind of brush it off as something that we all maybe get too concerned about, but he didn't seem to be.
2: Yeah, and I think the the idea there was um, that um, you know he did have an explanation for it, um, and there wasn't really any. Particular judgment around that whole thing, right. Um And difference, of course, is that we in society, and especially in Mormon culture, focus such an emphasis on um, that particular aspect. You know, are, you know, are you? Are you? Is it inborn? Is this a chosen path? Um, you know, and I have obviously very, very strong opinions on on that, um, uh, but. Yeah, that's kind of the premise. It's just like there was a, an incredible lack of judgment.
0: Yeah, and I think maybe the important thing too to point out as we're talking about doctrine, I, I know there's still this... uh this is stereotype or stigma that kind of goes through our cultures and even within the church, where where Latter Day Saints still feel or even feel the need to argue that being gay is a choice. But but would you mind maybe just sharing your thoughts on uh, on what the church's position is on that, so that maybe we can clarify that kind of uh, a once and for all for all those who are listening.
2: Well, the church put out a website last year called um, www.mormonsandgays.org. Um, which is so woefully underpublicized, um, and I wish it would be more closely linked with um, LDS.org. Um, for the first time, we have a general authority saying that um, you know that it isn't a choice; that um, you know our sexual orientation is is not something we choose. And, and honestly, Bill, you know, for me as a gay Mormon, it's like that's kind of a duh moment, right? I mean, right. Uh, let, Let's just go back to how we began this interview, right? My story about Captain Kirk at six years old. I didn't have the wherewithal, the knowledge, the capacity to choose my orientation. There was no choice there. At six years old, when you were watching Daisy Duke and Wonder Woman, you were not choosing your sexual orientation. You were responding to something that was already embedded in you, as was I.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and maybe kind of as we just kind of leave off the doctrine part, I guess the a couple of things, one is as we're talking about uh same-sex attraction is not a choice. It uh, no matter how what other things you want to say play into it, that's not one of them. And the church has taken that stance. So for those who are listening who who still want to kind of argue that old adage, I, I just don't think that that holds any water. The the other thing we touched on is that while doctrine may uh, be a certain way now, and we're certainly not going to I mean I'm not going to hold up a picket sign on on Temple Square and fight against the church to make something change i also would absolutely put my my feet down and and stand up and say hey look change is absolutely possible with any issue in the church that we're a church that uh, claims to be led by revelation and as you pointed out Mitch article of faith number 9 says that there are many great and wonderful things yet to be revealed in the kingdom of god and so we ought not to stand back and say well this is the way it is and nothing will ever happen in the church differently uh, because we simply don't know and then uh, and then maybe uh the third thing, as we just talk about, is that, and maybe I don't know if I even hit on this, but in the Old Testament, there's a lot of times we want to hold on to how God ruled in the Old Testament and use some of those scriptures to defend Common day practice, but I would simply mention, and, and you're free to put your two cents in. But I would simply mention that there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that we have uh, we've kind of set off to the side and said, uh, not today. We're not going to do that. And there's a lot of things that people were punished or killed for that today we would see as absolute nonsense. And 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 I I know it's not fair to say, well, this scripture I'm going to keep and this one I'm going to throw away. But maybe just kind of the overarching idea that. There are things within Scripture that are truth, and there's also things within Scripture that that probably don't make a whole lot of sense.
2: And what I think is so funny about people who, you know, do the fist-pounding, you know, this is how it is, and it's never going to change, is like when we do that, when we say that, um, first of all, I feel like we shut off any potential revelation, right? It's just like we have just essentially silenced God. We have said, we're done here. I don't really need any more revelation. I can do this on my own. Thanks, I got it. Um, And that's a little rude and a little presumptuous. Um, And the other thing that it does is that ninth article of faith and the principle that it embodies, Bill, is really what makes Mormonism unique, um, distinct, and probably one of the most hopeful religions on the planet. So when we shut our mind and our hearts to continuing revelation on one topic, we mute our capacity to live that hope on every topic. So I think it's a dangerous game to say this will never change, regardless of what the this is because we really remove ourselves from the cornerstone of our religion, and that is that continuing relationship with our Savior that reveals more to us when we're ready so we can learn, improve, grow, and return to our Father in Heaven.
0: Right, and I seem to remember uh, prior to 1978 that there were people who took that stance on a different issue, and, uh, and our Father in Heaven, you know, certainly chose at some point to to add some new insight and some new truth and to help us, uh, help us progress and move.
2: On. Absolutely. And I, 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 you know what, he's just, he's just not done talking. And I have to tell you, Bill, it's like, I don't get to, you know, to make doctrine for the, for the church. And, and gosh, thank heavens. I don't, because that's, that's a, a heck of a heavy mantle and I don't want to wear it. Right. Um, and I also don't, I'm not one of those people who challenges the doctrine and it is not my place to say that the church is wrong, that defining marriage between a man and a woman is wrong. I will never do that. Um, that's, the church's right, and I respect that. Um, public policy, of course, is a different story for me, um, but I, it's not my place to say that it's wrong, but I do think... Um, that we need to keep historical perspective here, Um, and we do need to understand that our Savior is very much alive and very much active, and people want black or white answers, right? We want to be spiritually and intellectually lazy, and I'm not immune from that. It's like I want to be told what to believe. I want to be told how to live my life, because when you do that, it's like then I'm not going to feel so guilty about spending so much time watching TV and playing video games or or doing whatever my hobbies are. Um, But the truth is we we don't get to do that, right? One of the things that we're down here is to exercise our is to down – is to exercise our gray matter and to make decisions and to think things through. Um, so we don't get to be lazy. Sadly, to say, we don't get to be lazy.
0: Right. Right. Elder Uchdorf and a CES fireside, and I say this one a lot on my, on my podcast, but in his talk there, he said that many of us confuse belief with truth. And when, be- and when, when truth comes, comes to us, we often kind of cast it off to the side and, and we'll claim that the person is trying to deceive us or whatnot. And as you point out, if, if we're trying to, Essentially fight back and say, well, Heavenly Father is never going to change on this issue or that issue. Then, as you point out, we're, we're in a sense really closing ourselves off to any additional revelation on that topic. And so each of us, regardless of where our stance is, and, and just like you, I'm not fighting for them to change the doctrine. I'll support the church and the stances that it takes. But I also don't try to say, hey, it's all settled. It's all, you know, the, the discussion is over and Heavenly Father is is never going to budge on this issue or any other. That, that there is uh, always an opportunity for new truth to come. And that new truth can always change the things that we currently hold at this moment. I uh, I want to get into the policy of the church, which is where I want to focus our discussion and talk about how we can be of help uh, both to those within the church who have uh, stewardships and can find ways to be more inclusive of those uh, who are LGBT uh, and members of the church and also to the LGBT members themselves. So in regards to policy, uh, uh, Mitch, what what are your thoughts on things we're doing that maybe aren't, we're not doing quite uh, the way that would, I guess in a sense, show more love and inclusiveness and what are some things that we could do that would help change that environment?
2: Well, um, you know, there's really uh, there's not a whole lot we can do about doctrine, right? M- Mitch and Bill can't can't change doctrine, and and, and if, if you believe our words, and I, and I think I do, uh, we don't want to. Um, and and the same is true for every bishop and stake president and Relief Society president and elders corn president out there, right? You don't get to change doctrine; you have to work underneath it. Um, policy, however, is something that we can have a little bit of flexibility on. And then there's a third thing, culture, that we can have a huge amount of flexibility on. Um, so. From the policy perspective, you know I don't think it's really well known bill that um and you served in a leadership calling too as a bishop correct, so you probably yep,
0: that. I was a bishop yep,
2: so when we get you know when we get our callings, we get you know the handbook, which is shockingly thin, right I mean, I thought it was going to be you know a phone book, but it's really not, um and what people don't realize is that excommunicating gay Mormon for having a relationship with someone of the same gender is not policy. Um, That is not our policy. Now, over time, it has become a big cultural practice. Fortunately, I think over the last couple of years, we're seeing a lot less of that. But that has been what we've done culturally. And when I tell people that it's not policy to kick gay people out, they're shocked. Um, they just assume that it is in our policy, there is a really short list of things that we are required to hold a disciplinary council on, and those include some pretty egregious acts um rape, um, you know child molestation, like felony embezzlement, things that we all can agree are pretty serious and really should be looked at from a perspective of whether or not the person really should be associated with you know the latter day saint. Um, then on the next page in the handbook, you know there's a full page, a really long list of things we might consider having a disciplinary trial for, and that's where the LGBT issue fit, is we might consider having a disciplinary trial on it, Um, and the irony is, over time, sort of culturally shifted it from the maybe column over into the must-have column, Um, and I think it's born out of a couple of things, um, primarily... Um, it's born from the fact that most bishops and stake presidents and counselors don't know what else to do. Because up until a few years ago, until I am the arena and there were so many gay Mormons followed me, there really wasn't a pathway for gay Mormons whether or not they were in a relationship. So what we've done here in the Bay Ward and actually in the Bay Area as a whole is we've taken a look at this and said, you know what, we're not, we're not going to you know, push doctrine. That's not our job. Um, but what we are going to do is going to change culture and we're going to interpret policy. Um, so with that, we are going to throw the doors, the doors open. So anyone who feels like they are on the outside looking in, Particular LGBT members, is welcoming. If you're in a relationship with somebody of the same sex, come to sacrament meeting, come to Sunday school, come to elders quorum and, and Relief Society. We will welcome you as part of the, warm family, or the Ward family. If you're single and living under the confines of policies, we understand it today, same rule, come join us. If you're single and dating somebody new every night, same rule, come join us. It doesn't really matter where you are in your personal life. What matters is you have something to offer and we have something to offer in return. And that's what's important here. So as we've done that here in the Bay Area, the interesting thing is not only have we had a lot of LGBT members return to church, but we've had a lot of straight members return to church. I got an email the other day um, from a guy who is, he's a Latin guy, he was married in the temple, um, lived in Salt Lake, but is actually a native New Yorker. And he's like, look, I quit going to church because I felt like it was really racist. Um, and, you know, I was tired of being called a Lamanite. And um, do you think, you know, given what is happening, um, you know, that my my temple wife and I, I, who've been married for years and years and years, do you think that I might have a place in your church? And that was really touching to me because that's really the premise behind this whole thing, Bill, right? It's like um, everybody really does belong. And as a leadership team under Bishop Fletcher, we really viewed ourselves as that steward. Our job is to bring people closer to our Savior, wherever they are in our personal lives. And we can't really do that effectively if we're routinely kicking of
0: faith. Yeah, you know, my thought is, and it's right along with what you're saying, which is the mission of the church is to bring all unto Christ. And sometimes we almost kind of forget that motive for a moment, and we react to our own personal judgments but maybe if i can just give an example as well so i know i know of a situation in my ward mitch where there is a a woman and a man they are living together they've been together for for several years the the sister is a member of the church the uh, the man is not a member of the church but he comes every sunday he's investigating he wants to get baptized he wants nothing more to get baptized the issue is he's still currently married to his his previous spouse they've been separated for years but the the divorce, you know, for his financial situation, the divorce costs more money than he has, and he's been saving up for a long time, trying to be able to have the money to pay for this. And he's gone through bits and pieces of the process to be able to get this divorce taken care of. But by the letter of the law, these two are breaking the law of chastity, and so. The immediate reaction might be for a church leader to say, uh oh, these guys are breaking rules, we've gotta have a disciplinary council and we've gotta, you know, we've gotta rectify this. But the stance I've seen take place in some of those situations is a different motive, which is, how do we bring these two unto Christ? What can we do? to bring this this man and this woman closer to the savior and understanding their situation understanding that each of us have an individual story and experience and that simply going by an outward behavior doesn't tell the whole story as our father in heaven doesn't look on the outward but on the uh, but on our hearts and I know in this particular situation, these, these two members have been absolutely, completely had their, their, the word's arms wrapped around them. They've been loved, they've been allowed to fully participate, uh, in any way that, that is possible. While still recognizing that there's still some progress to be made or things that, that in the church's eyes obviously have to happen. But the last thing in the world that anybody in our, in our ward has thought is to, to take some kind of disciplinary action is that just doesn't solve the motive of bringing them closer to Christ. And I often wonder why when it's a man and a man or a woman and a woman, we automatically feel a need to go a different route then when we have a situation like I'm describing with a man and a woman who are, in a sense, you know, breaking the same rule, but yet our approach is completely different. Uh, does that make sense?
2: It does make sense. And, and the truth of the matter is, is like, I think that we have had those, you know, those straight couples who are, are living outside what we define in the proclamation of family as, as um, you know, traditional um, temple worthy families we've had those straight members for years and you know decades and probably even generations inside the church and we haven't um you know we haven't hunted them down um but yet when it's um when it's somebody of the same gender who that's happening to we have tend to tended to hunt them down and um, I think that's born out of a couple things bill I think it's number one we don't know how else to respond um, at least traditionally we haven't known how else to respond and two um, there is a societal norm um, of uh, that we as men I think are especially raised to have and that's not just to reject the idea of same gender relationships but to have a violent reaction to it and most of our leaders let's face it are men so there's societal societal pressure on one side that tells us we have to respond to stamp thing out um and then there's our cultural perspective too inside the church that we don't know how else to respond we haven't really had another pathway it's like okay well it's on the maybe list um but, gosh, what do I do with somebody who's living with her, you know, her partner of 15 years? What, uh, you know, do I let her come to Relief Society? Can she offer a prayer? I mean, there's so many kind of unanswered questions, right? Um So it's kind of, we've taken kind of the coward's way out and tended to, you know, remove these people so we no longer have to deal with them.
0: Yep, yep. And I, I guess I want to follow that up with, you know, we've talked about the effort in your ward and stake to reach out to these individuals and to invite them back to church in a sense to kind of follow the admonition of Elder Uchtdorf in his uh, conference talk uh, a year ago, come join with us and uh, to invite the, any member of the church, regardless of their situation, regardless of where they're at, to, to consider coming back. So that's the first part, which is to get them back into the building, to get them back into the church and to make them feel loved and welcome. But let's take that a step further. What other things can we do? I mean, what can we do in regards to to callings uh, in regards to other ways in which we can get these kinds of uh, members. And I think even other members who, who find themselves on the fringe for one reason or another, how can we get them involved? Well, I
2: think that that takes a little creativity on the part of um, the bishopric and the ward council. Um, And the great thing is, is as Mormons, um, we're pretty we're pretty smart and creative lot. Um, So you know, we obviously can't extend you know high level calling to individuals who are in same gender marriages or who are in same gender relationships. I mean, that's we can't we can't do it for straight people either, right? Who are not married and living under the 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 policy of the Family Proclamation. Um, But there are things we can do. The first and foremost, I think, is home teaching and visiting. Teaching. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. I don't think anybody, you know, is at least in my ward and stake exempt from having that responsibility and having that gift. Um, meaning that everybody has to do it. You have to fill your, um, you know, your visiting teaching and your home teaching, um, and you also have a visiting teacher or a home teacher. So, you know, no one's out of the loop on that one. Um, The second is in every ward, there are unique needs, right? So in our ward, we are, you know, located in a a major metropolis, right? So we have um, need for someone who knows how to work um, the city uh, systems in terms of housing for low income, um, accessing health care for people with um, special needs. And by and large, you know, we have found that skill set in returning LGBT members um, because they've done it. Themselves, and so we have extended special calling to LGBT members to help um, other board members navigate those those city systems. So there's um, there's a lot of leeway that you can give on a small level that really connects people up to um, to the larger church, uh, larger church system, larger church family.
0: And I like that. And maybe another correlation. In line with the story I just shared a moment ago, I find we do this, at least in my ward, we do this when we have, uh, we have a young, uh, a young woman in our ward. She is under 18. She's in high school. She's been coming to church for, for several years, but her grandmother won't let her join the church. So she's not a member of record. She's not been baptized, but she is an active member of the ward in that sense of attending and participating and being part of the community. We've certainly extended opportunities for her to have responsibilities in young women or to have responsibilities Responsibilities with the uh, the stake uh, youth committee and things like that, and so we've given her a chance to serve. And I know within even the handbook, there are certain callings in the ward that one does not have to be a member of the church to to be a part of. And so I absolutely agree with you, Mitch. If there's if there's leaders listening to this, and, and this is uh, you, a need in your ward. I mean, find a way to give them some sort of responsibility, give them a chance to feel like they're part of our community, uh, part of our church, and it just goes a long way. And and as, Elder, or as uh, President Hinckley said, uh, several years back, he said that every uh, member of the church, and I would even extend this to say, you know, non-member who's attending needs a friend, needs, uh, the good word of God, but they also need a responsibility. And, and those three things are what we as leaders are called to provide to every person who comes into our doors so that they have a chance to come closer to the Savior.
2: Well, and think about it though. It's just like, by and large, um, you know, it, you know, what I have found to be true, you know, a large portion of uh, returning LGBT members are amazing, talented um, musicians. Um, They are amazingly talented artists. Um, And, you know, we have used those skills to make our Easter program better and to make our weekly bulletin better and to, um, you know, help fortify the the ward choir. It's just like, I mean, everybody has something to offer. And the great thing about this bill is, is like we're really not doing these gay Mormons a huge favor, right? They're doing us a favor because when that enrichment is added to you know the tapestry of our combined testimony and you know we bond together as of Mormon family we all come out better not just the gay Mormons all of us
0: i know i know in our ward we are we're up in uh, northern ohio we've got about 115 to 120 members who attend regularly and i would i would love i would love to see more people attend the ward and and whatever their situations are right we're not just talking about in a sense lgbt issues but any member who feels excluded or in the on the fringe or feels like they're just not welcome uh, i would just love for those members to to feel that desire and to know that they're loved by those of us in the ward to to feel the strength and courage to come back and uh, and and it, it hurts me a little bit you know we talk about these kinds of issues and I want to get into this in a moment, but unfortunately the way our culture has reacted in probably ways that we don't need to react there's been some some negative consequences of that and uh, but before I get into that there's one thing that we did kind of skip past maybe because it seems like common sense but we probably ought to hit on it which is one other false assumption there there's a difference in the church between same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior in the sense of how the church defines its doctrine and policy and I wonder Mitch if you might might help members of the church understand uh, how the church sees those two issues separately.
2: Absolutely, Um, and I think that is an important point to clarify because a lot of people – um, you know, the LGBT issue often isn't one we learn about as Mormon until we have to, right? My mom is a great case study of that. And you know, her initial reaction to me is certainly not—it was certainly not the reaction she had to me at the end of her life, right? And she learned a lot, and um, she went full circle, right? I mean, she was, you know, my best friend and my ally, and you know, uh, an amazing woman and supporter of me as as her, you know, her, as her gay Mormon kid. Um, there is a difference um, between being gay and acting on it we consider that the fact that you're gay is not a sin in and of itself um and we as mormons and i think as society as a whole you know, mormons aren't the only ones who are guilty of this but we immediately cast versions on anyone we find out is gay oh they're immoral or oh, they're you know they've got a devil inside of them oh they're making this horrible choice well our church has pretty much said uh-uh folks not the case our leadership is spoken, that is not what we believe, um, and that is not what we hold that our Savior believes. Um, the difference comes in when people begin to enter um, a sexual relationship, um, and that's when, you know, under the family proclamation, it is defined as a sin for a gay person just as it is for a straight person. So um, same-sex attraction um, I is sort of a vernacular that is used nowhere else in the world, um, aside from inside Mormonism. Um, it has become sort of a cultural construct, that we put together, I think the genesis of it came out of a um, a fireside in the 1970s um, from uh, Elder Packer, in fact, who um, was averse to using the word, you know, gay or lesbian. Um, and I think it probably stemmed from a fear of if we acknowledge it, it becomes real, right? Um, so he created this construct of same-sex attraction. And what science uses and what the rest of the world uses is the term gay. And the reason there is a, a really interesting important distinction here um, is this. Um, When we say same-sex attracted, we make someone's sexual orientation completely about sex and it's not. Um, You know, there's been a lot of research done on sexual orientation, both gay and straight, that proves that it is a a core essential part of our identity. And, you know, sex is a component of it, but really how it manifests itself is in our desire to relate to the family of humanity. Let's go back for a second to the beginning of this, when I talked about Captain Kirk. That was not about sex. That was about human neckness. That was about me wanting Captain Kirk to be part of my life. There was no sex there you know, and I'd be hard-pressed, you know, to believe that um, your relationship with wife as a heterosexual um, could be reduced and boiled down to just being about sex. I assume it's much more complex than that, that you love her for her endearing qualities and for her quirks and for her, you know, the way she inspires you to get out of bed in the morning or, or elbows you to get out of the bed in the morning, if that's the case. Right. Um, yep. It's much more three-dimensional than that. So what we do is when we, we reduce someone's sexual orientation to being just about a feeling is we help people believe or actually trick people into believing that, oh gosh, you know what, if this is just a feeling, then it's something that you can get over. So a feeling is like being tired or being hungry or being um, happy. You know, it, th- those are, you know, important parts of ourselves too, but those are just feelings that we can, you know, push those away. Not the case of sexual orientation. It is an integral part of our identity that um, that is unchangeable, that doesn't go away, and we can't mute it and we can't reduce it. Um, Um, without muting and reducing every part of ourselves. So when we try to stuff down our orientation, um, then we actually stifle our capacity to be brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, musicians and colleagues at work um, and pet owners and cousins. I mean, we essentially mute every part of our existence. So it's a big problem when we inside the church Say same-sex attracted versus using what the actual term is, um, you know, being gay. There was a a recent um, BYU uh, study here that you may have seen um, where they actually were looking to understand the orientation of the of the students at BYU. And I think the two yep. of the questions were, you know, check this, you know, check the box that's appropriate. I am straight, and the other box was I am straight but I struggle with same-sex attraction, um, which was really unfortunate because I, I know what they were after and what they were trying to discover. But the truth of the matter is, Bill, is as a religion, we respect and honor science. Um, we, you know, there's not one of us here who, if our kid was had cancer, that we would march into the doctor's office and demand that our child be treated with the latest technology from the 1970s. But yet that's what we do with, with, with gay kids, right? I mean, the resources that we have now are from the 1970s. Um, that's shocking for a church that's as progressive and believes as much science as, as Mormons do. Um, but, yeah, it's like we... You know, we need to understand that, you know, science progressed and, and, and we, and we should too. Um, when we don't acknowledge, um, the gender identity and when BYU, BYU put this study out, you know, they were looking to, um, you know, figure out, you know, who's gay on campus, not gay or straight. It's awfully difficult, um, for us to understand something, let alone respond to it in an informed fashion if we're not even calling it by the right thing.
0: Yeah. You know, and I, I, I did hear about that, uh, the survey that was given and I, I did think it was odd, right? I mean, if you, if you leave certain options out of the answers to the question, it it almost seems like a way to kind of ignore that there are other options as answers. And, and it did seem like, you know, as I, if I took that survey and I was someone who was gay, there really wasn't any place for me to, I mean, I can mark the other box and I could write it in, but you're almost pushing me towards those first two answers, which, which don't fit. Like you say, it's just a horrible way to, to really address the question which was trying to be asked in the results that they were looking for and what they were trying to uh, to arrive at, I guess.
2: Well, I had a student actually um, text me, and you know, when the when the survey came out, and he's like, you know, I'm actually checking the other box, and I said, you know, interesting. Tell me what you know what you're going to say inside of the other box. He said, I wrote, um, "No, I am not straight, and no, I do not suffer from same sex attraction. Being gay comes quite naturally to me."
0: <laughs> you know, when I was serving as bishop, and the reason I asked this question to begin with, or wanted to make mention of uh, the same sex Attraction versus homosexual behavior. I I walked into when I was serving as bishop. I walked into my ward one Sunday before sacrament meeting had started. There were only a a couple of people in the uh, in the chapel, and uh, two of them were a, a husband and wife, older couple. And you know, with our culture, we grow up with some false assumptions. This couple they were having a discussion about the LGBT issues, and they were making comments about. Uh, those who, who have that attraction were sinning. And I walked right up to him. I said, you guys, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the church, and I mentioned the church's website. So the church has a wonderful website, mormonandgays.org. And the church is very clear that for one to have, uh, an attraction or to be, uh, to be gay is not in and of itself, anything negative in the church's eyes, that there's nothing at all that we should be looking down upon or making comments about or or making judgments in a negative way about somebody. And I could tell by the look in their eyes that even though I was telling them that information, they weren't processing it. They were, they were simply choosing to hold on to uh, some old ideas and, and here's what I want to lead to. I want to, I want to use this kind of as a bridge to, to make the point that we still do this a lot within our culture. as you pointed out, the way in which your parents reacted, which which is not the way your mom really is or the way that she has uh, treated you since then, but it was an assumption she made in the beginning about what was expected of her and her reaction to you and what was what was the pressure on her, at least what she felt like in order to deal with the news that you had just given her and i want to get into talking about some of the consequences or the effect that we have as members of the church when we respond uh hastily and with the wrong kind of response uh, to members of uh, of the church who are in the lgbt community can you can you maybe share with us some of your thoughts on on some of the negative things that happen and then maybe we can kind of go full circle and then talk about maybe a better way to respond to people.
2: My story is, um, you know, it's, it's pretty ugly. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Um, you know, from the outset, you know, from me telling my parents um, that I was gay and the responses that I got from them, you know, then there were meetings with, um, you know, the bishop, state president. I'm actually writing an article um, right now about um, my one of my first meetings with uh, my bishop on the topic. And um, my bishop told me that, you know, it, it was like I had a wolf living inside of me, that, um, you know, there were two parts in me. There was white and holy and pure parts that really loved my father in heaven and wanted to return home to him. And there was this other really dark and ominous part that was um, like, you know, a, a werewolf, a monster that wanted to, you know, nothing more to de- than to devour that, that righteous part of me. And with it, you know, my soul and my eternal capacity return to my Father in heaven. Um, you know, that's a horrifying thing to tell somebody who's 16. You know, and I, I believed that for many, many years uh, about myself. Um, and as a result, I lived a really discordant and fractured life. Um, you know, it affected, you know, I I, I had no peace. Um, I hated myself, absolutely hated myself. Um, and I hated God. I hated my Savior. I hated my Father in Heaven. I did not understand how somebody who was supposed to unconditionally love me could put a curse, a wolf, a monster inside of me like it affected my relationship with my savior and with my father in heaven i did not trust him i did not like him we're admonished from the time we are little kids inside the mormon church to build a relationship with our savior and i thought to myself why would i want to build a relationship with somebody who did this and even if i did build a relationship with him how am i ever supposed to trust him so that's one consequence of you know telling people that you know being gay is is you know a choice and or you know wrong and or um, you know that it, it's not part of, of the plan, and we're not uh, we're not included in you know sort of the family of humanity as individuals. The more important thing, though, that is tragic in my eyes is you know since I've been really public about my own. My own personal story is so I've become the repository of, of literally tens of thousands of of stories out there from both LGBT Mormons and their family members, and they're really, really heart wrenching accounts of, of how we mistreated them um, and how they've treated each other. Uh, one story springs to mind. Um, um, I think I got a text in uh, January or February either from uh, a young Mormon, a young gay Mormon kid that I'm working with uh, outside of the Salt Lake City area. Um, he's a college student. He um, so the son that happens to be, you know, a psych major um, at a university there, he um, when his parents went to the state president of the bishop, they got the same materials that, that I got when I had come out to my parents some 25 years ago. And, you know, since this guy is a, a psychology major, he actually went up to his dad and said, Dad, I, I don't think we're using this information because these studies are actually older than I am. Um, and, and they are. Um, and, you know, things were rocky with his parents, but progressing okay um, until Christmas dinner rolled around. And, and this, this kid is the, the the only son and the youngest of a family of eight kids and at Christmas dinner um, you know his mom said I want to I want to say how grateful I am for my family um, even my son Joe um, because I really wanted a son and it looks like I got a daughter after all um, and said that in front of the entire family um, because wow. you knew at that point that he was gay um, which was really crushing to and then in February I got a text from him um, and he said, you know, I just had a conversation with my father and it was on the heels of uh a really difficult, I think, general conference at the end of last year that we'd had um on the LG topic. Um he said I just had a conversation with my father and he backed to the general conference talk and my dad said he cannot support me and port the church and I have to go. I have to move out. So his son left.
0: Wow. And and that's and that's it. I mean that's my point, which is that, that story of that young man and your story that you shared are not the exceptions to the rule in in this statistical analysis of what happens to these kids and unfortunately we need to just just face the facts which are that some of these uh, members of the church, these young men, young women, who who receive negative responses. Sometimes they have uh, major issues of depression because of the way in which their parents and other loved ones respond, the way in which the ward or church responds to them, that some of them are kicked out of their homes, as the story you just pointed out. Uh, I don't remember what the exact statistic is, but there's a high, high percentage of of homeless youth in in Utah because they're gay.
2: October 2013, an article came out in the Standard Examiner in Utah, um, and it was reported that um, Utah has 5,000 homeless youth. Um, About 40% of those homeless youth are LGBT. So um, of the approximate 2,000 LGBT Utah youth who are homeless, um, half of them are Mormon. So if we assume that most of these kids are in the Salt Lake Valley, um, which is likely the case, what, one million in population, we can extrapolate that roughly one out of every 1,000 individuals in the Salt Lake City Valley is a homeless gay Mormon youth. One out of every 1,000 individuals in the Salt Lake Valley is a homeless gay Mormon youth. That's shocking.
0: Yeah, that's heart-wrenching. And, and that speaks to the issue, which is our response as parents, as ward leaders, as siblings, as other loved ones, grandmas and grandpas and, and other family members and friends that the, and I guess the heart of the issue is culturally we feel there's a need to choose sides. I either have to choose my church, as you pointed out, or I have to choose my child. But the truth is the church doesn't require us to choose one or the other, right? I mean, there's no, there's there's no rule, there's no doctrine, there's no policy in the church that says that if you love your, your gay child and welcome them with open arms uh, as, as your, as your child, as your loved one, as someone you care deeply about, in no way does that mean you're throwing the church under the bus. And yet we feel culturally like that is that is what is being asked of us, that we need to make a choice. And unfortunately, it, it results in, as we talked about, depression, homelessness, unfortunately, at times, even suicide. And, and these, uh, these kids are obviously going to go through the rest of their lives with these experiences. And often that also means lots of negative things down the road. Um, you know, we talk about, You know, drug use and other problems that are, that are going to be more severe in these kinds of cases. And often we want to maybe culturally say, well, this person's making bad choices when it comes to drugs and other things like that. But in reality, we need to recognize that when we, when we are negative, when we make people feel less than, when we make people feel excluded or feel unloved, those, that group of people more times than not are always going to turn to something else, right?
2: Well, we actually have data now um, and science to um, to prove, you know, what you just said. And the Family Acceptance Project um, out of California here in San Francisco, in fact, one of the universities, um, they did a, an, an amazing study um, in the state um, of, you know, extremely diverse families, um, and the data, <clears throat> you know, was unequivocal. And here's what the data showed, Bill. Um, when a family rejects their Mormon LGBT child, um, which includes, you know, obviously ejecting them from the home, it puts those children at an amazing high risk for physical and mental health problems um, as they grow up. Um, and here are just some, some quick statistics here. Um, families um, or kids who um, from families who experience high level of rejection are actually more than eight times as likely to attempt suicide. They're nearly six times as likely to have depression. They're more than three times as likely to use illegal drugs. And they're more than three times as likely to be at high risk for HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases. And you're right. It's like when we, inside a Mormon community, um, we sit by and, you know, smug intent in our seedled families and our heterosexuality, And we look out at the LGBT community and LGBT Mormon to say, see, this is what happens to all of them. They're immoral. Um, There's a whole host of sins that come across, you know, when you're gay. And what we don't recognize is our own hand in filling that prophecy. We have made that happen by the way we have responded to these LG kids.
0: Right, right. I I want to recap here, and then I want to give you kind of a a chance to share some final thoughts. So we talked earlier about doctrine, What, uh, what it is and isn't, that we're not fighting to change it but that we also do sit back and realize that the church when it comes to doctrine is a changing entity because we're founded on revelation because we have prophet seers and revelators we recognize that things were different in the past than what they are today and they will very well and for sure certainly be different in the future than what they are today what changes and what doesn't we don't know and we certainly sustain uh, the current doctrine of the church we also talked about policy how in the handbooks that disciplinary councils are not meant. Mandatory and absolutes when it comes to uh, working with members who are uh, practicing homosexual behavior, that that is a more flexible uh, policy in the church, that each bishop uh, has the ability to incorporate what is best to bring that member closer to Christ. We also talked about culture and how there's nothing stopping us from, one, being kind, from Extending responsibilities to these members, giving them a chance to, to serve, giving them a chance to be part of our community, but also welcoming them and, you know, welcoming them with open arms and, and being a friend and making, and making that, in a sense, a non-issue and how we treat them versus how we treat anybody else. We're all human beings who, who fall short of the glory of God. We also talked about some of the issues that come when we respond negatively and how sometimes culturally we feel drawn to choose between the church and In our LGBT child or friend or loved one, and how really that choice doesn't have to be made. I want to end this way, Mitch. I I know that there are going to be lots of people who tune into this podcast for the very first time because they're following you and not me. And some of them are going to be struggling with feelings of of depression or hurt, and because of of what this issue, how it's divided, maybe their family or them from the church. I want to pose two questions to you. And then give you a few minutes to respond. One is for those members of the church who are also gay and are thinking about coming back or wondering why they should come back. I want you to talk to them for a minute. And then I want you to also uh, respond to that youth that's in the church who who is having a hard time and wondering what they do from here. Uh, I wonder if you might speak to those two groups and uh, we'll end the podcast on that note.
1: Actually,
2: I'll do it, but, but under one condition, that I can speak to a third group. Um, sure. And I want to speak to the parents um, and to our bishopric, to our stake president, and, and our auxiliary leaders, um, because that Sophie's choice that we talked about is a false one, um, and it doesn't need to exist. It does exist. Um, and this idea of families having to make the great Abrahamic sacrifice, it's, it's a false, um, it's an illusion. And I'll, I want to address how we can how we can eradicate that, that false or that illusion. Please,
0: absolutely, all three of those.
2: Okay, so first to LGBT Mormons who are contemplating returning to the church. So in my story, um, I actually did leave the church for uh, an extended period of time, um, partly because my parents divorced, partly because I was gay. You know, being a gay Mormon in Idaho from a divorced family, (laughs) um, there weren't a lot of resources out there to support me, and there sure as heck weren't any inside the church. Um, And, you know, I did leave the church, and and by and large, I had a pretty good time. Um, I met a lot of really cool people. I had fun. Um, But Mormonism is, is like this little The only thing that I can compare it to, Bill, is Judaism. Um, You know, it's not something we do for, you know, a couple hours a month on Sunday, right? It's like... It, I call it embedded into our spiritual DNA. Um, it affects how we dress, uh, what we eat or drink, um, whether or not we go to college often, what our majors are, where we go to college. Um, it affects what we do with our free time. Um, it certainly affects who we choose as our friends and, and how we select our, our partners and companions. right? Um, so when a gay Mormon leaves a church, there's just this hole inside of them oftentimes that, um, that can never really be filled because what we've also lost in addition to our... Um, our church is our family and um, we've lost our culture and it's it's difficult and A lot of us want to return to church. The trick for us as gay Mormons is trying to navigate the murky waters of whether or not we'll be accepted for who we really are. So there are a couple of options. Um, In today's world, we are really, really lucky in that the network of progressive Mormons and supportive Mormons is really big. Um, I'd say it's roughly a third of the church population in the United States at this point, which is a lot of Mormons. And finding someone in your ward or your stake who is supportive, and willing to sit with you is pretty easy. Um, It may not be directly in your ward. You may have to drive a half an hour, but you're going to find somebody. Um, And we're pretty much connected through social media. So if you are a gay Mormon and you're thinking about returning and you have questions, by all means, email me. Um, I am happy to uh, connect you up with a community of other gay Mormon um, and allies and families of gay Mormons who will welcome you with open arms and show you – actually, this is going to make me cry – Show you the kind of welcome that we as Mormons should have been showing you for a long time. So, yeah. Now that I'm done with that, sorry, I got a little choked up. Um, hey, hey,
0: Mitch. One other thing too. Put me on that list. If you get anybody out in the uh, in the Cleveland, Ohio, stake, you can put my name down.
2: Oh, you got it, buddy. I sure will. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Um, the second audience that I want to address is the youth. Um, I don't know that you'll have a lot of youth listen to this, um, but uh, um, there was an essay that I wrote, Bill, um, a couple of years ago. It's called You Know Who I Am. I think it was one of the first ones that was ever published, and I wrote it anonymously originally. um, And it was published on some random website, and I got an email from a 14-year-old kid, um, and it was a pretty simple email. He said, you know, I've been dealing with this for a long time. I've always known that I was gay, and I hadn't had anywhere to turn but just knowing that you're out there really helped me. And I thought to myself, what would have happened if when I was 14 years old, I looked out across the Mormon landscape and I just saw one of them, right? I just saw one guy or one gal who was openly gay and Mormon and public about it, and not apologizing to the gay community for being Mormon, and not apologizing to the Mormon community for being gay? What would right. that What would What would that have meant me? Um, I would have made such different decision in my life. Maybe I would have never left the church. Um, you know, I, I just my life path would have been dramatically different. So, if you're that kid out there, um, also don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I've been you. <laughs> And I know what it feels like, um, and there are actually groups um, across the country uh, for LGBT Mormon youth, um, some of them virtual, some of them physical, um, and there are a place for you to get support um, and for you to find individuals who will welcome and love you in a way that maybe your parents quite can't right now. The third group that I want to address is parents, family members, and the leaders of um, our ward stake. And I want to talk civically and explicitly about this um, Sophie's Choice that we feel like we must make, that we have to in you know, our child, our church. Um, The Family Accepted Project that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, it's not a Mormon group. Um, It is a research group, and it's full of um, amazing, super smart people that I have gotten to know really well over the last several years. And honestly, Bill, if I can be frank... Every single one of the people that I meet there embodies, you know, the best quality of of Mormons in in, in a way sometimes even Mormons can't, you know, muster up. Um, but these people have amazing hearts and amazing spirits. And the work that they have done, um, they came out last year actually with an, a booklet called um, "Supportive Families, Healthy Children," and an associated um, film that um, that we did that's actually um, running the festival circuit right now that teaches <coughs> Mormon parents. How to Parent LGBT Children in a Way That Stays Within the Doctrine and the Construct of Our Faith. Um, really what it is, is it's it's basically the only faith-oriented research-based resource um, to be recognized as a best practice um, by the National Registry for Suicide Prevention. Um, which, and that's a pretty, pretty big deal. I had the opportunity to go to one of their conferences in the recent past. Um, being in, uh, a best practice on suicide prevention is not something that's handed out to any organization. Trevor Project doesn't have it. Um, most of your LGBT organizations that claim to prevent youth suicide for gay kids—I I don't think any of them have it. Um, and the irony is, this is the only faith-based practice in the registry, and it happens in Mormon, which I think is absolutely super cool. Um, it educates parents um, about you know how to keep their families together um, and what family behaviors um, help prevent depression, illegal drug use, and suicide, and also. What's really important is how to build self-esteem um, for the overall health of their LGB kid, um, again, in the context of our mom and faith. Because at our core, as parents, Bill, what we really want and what my mom wanted when she said those words was she wanted to have a happy health kid, and she just didn't know how to do it. If my mom had had this material from the Family Accepts Project, she would have done a lot differently, and I would have turned out um, This stuff This stuff saves lives, and I have to be frank, I have an extremely strong testimony that this is a gift for Savior. Um, this work um, belongs inside of our warming It belongs in our manual and how we teach parent-kids um, it belongs inside of the construct of our church it is beautiful, it is heartwarming um, and it is something that every every parent and every family member of Gay Mormon Kid should know and should learn about and if you want to learn more about that and what else we're doing with Family Acceptance Project, uh, again I will put myself on point as contact person uh, with the caveat as you know, getting kids is my first and foremost issue and getting to families who have an urgent need is my first and foremost priority. Um, so I'm not always the fastest gun in the West when it comes to email but I Respond to absolutely everything comes in.
0: Awesome. I will include when this episode is published. I will include links uh, to both your site bitchmain.com, and then I'll also include uh, links to the Family Acceptance Project and some of these uh, some of these pamphlets or brochures that you're talking about that can be helpful to these these families who. Mitch Main, uh gay, Mormon, active, faithful. I am just uh, extremely pleased to have finally gotten you on the podcast, and uh, I think this makes a world of difference. Thank you so much, Mitch, for being on. Bill,
2: thank you, my friend. The pleasure was all mine, and uh, I am happy, again, to answer any questions you
1: may have. So feel free to send them my way. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love Here I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God To rescue me from danger Interposed His precious blood blood. Oh, that day when Freed from sinning I shall see Thy lovely face Clothed then in Blood-washed linen, how I'll sing Thy sovereign grace! Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom, soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day.